Welcome to Doing the Most, the series where we talk about the misadventures of entrepreneurship. I'm your host, Georgie, execution strategist and serial entrepreneur. This series is here to get real about what entrepreneurial life truly looks like. We are driven, persistent, hardworking, ambitious. We are human, and these are our stories. Welcome back to Doing the Most, The Misadventures of Entrepreneurship. I'm your host, Georgie, and today we have Carol, an amazing entrepreneur and a doer who will be sharing her story and her adventures and misadventures of entrepreneurship. So Carol, can you give us a little bit of an introduction about who you are and kind of how you got here? Yes. So I uh, landed at Yale University being told by my AP English teacher that I would never be good enough to get into Yale, and even if I did... I wouldn't be able to graduate because I couldn't write well enough, but I wanted to be a writer, so I didn't listen to anybody. And um, I eventually, I also got a PhD in English literature, so I've, and I've published Ooh. books. <laughs> and I, you know, you, Dr. Carol Barish, uh, I eventually gave myself permission to call myself an author. I love to write. I love teaching other people how to write. Um, when I was teaching at Rutgers, I saw that my students had the same problem that I had in high school. Mm. that they had ideas and they could talk about them. But the minute they started to try to write, it just like all got tangled between their, their, their voice and the paper, their voice and their computer. And so I taught them to write the way I taught myself to write. I taught them to speak out loud mm-hmm. in really crisp, clear, poetic sentences, short, energetic, muscular, rhythmic sentences and um, then to learn to put a couple of those together into a paragraph and a few par- and and um, I won a couple of teaching awards. I co- I won- I published two books, but I didn't get tenure at Rutgers, and it was like the, a gift from the gods because <laughs> I landed uh, back at Princeton where I got my PhD working in the early early days of education technology, building the textual infrastructure for the Oxford English Dictionary and the first scholarly Shakespeare and a version of the Declaration wow. of Independence. And, <laughs> and I've been like working at the intersection of education and technology and community building. Community is super important to me like ever since. And mm. I'm now uh, the founder and CEO of a company called Story2, Story and the number 2.com. We have offices in New York, New York and Hangzhou, China. Wow. And I am so, I'm so happy to be here. And talk about like some of the things I've learned by tripping and falling. And I'm so happy for other people to learn from my mistakes. (laughs) They can make their own and teach other people. Nice. Thank you so much. That was a great introduction. So I want to um, tackle one one part of the story that you began, right? What was happening while your teachers said that, you know, you'd never be able to make it to Yale, you'd never be a good writer. Like what was like your learning style and why the, you know, this teacher put this like negative energy all on you? Like, what was happening? So I think in retrospect, he was really insecure. He was oh, okay. he had never finished his PhD. So he was teaching high school. So he was unfulfilled. And he, um, his favorite student was a student who wanted to be an artist, but he decided he was supposed to be an author. So he sort of like crushed that student. Like at least I didn't get crushed. <laughs> um, but as far as me, um, I, when I was a little girl, uh, well, I'm going to use my, what my grandmother said about herself something happened to me that should never happen to other people. Mm. And I had secrets. And I think that I had trouble putting things into words because there were things that I had locked away and couldn't talk about. 
Mm-hmm. And it took me time. It took me two years at college, a year out of college, then two years back at college. It wasn't really until I had my own daughters that I had to face this stuff. I just couldn't keep it locked away anymore. And I didn't want the trauma. Like I knew my, my grandmother had been assaulted by her older brother. Mm. I'd read every word of Virginia Woolf, so I knew what happened to her. And I just didn't want that to happen to my, my daughters. I didn't want there to be secrets and pain and suffering. And so I had to come to peace with who I was and how things had happened to me. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and the other thing, the other thing that was really definitional is my father died when I was 16. He died oh, wow. at home of I'm cancer. Thank you. Um, I was the last person he talked to before he died. And he was like compressed everything I needed to know for like my whole adult life into like our last few conversations. And that was also, you know, I had this, he said, you know, Carol, you can do anything. Like he just Mm. believed in me, insanely believed in me, you know? And he said, you're not going to be a doctor, lawyer, or Indian chief. (laughs) He's like, you're going to figure out something new and it's going to take you time. And so be patient. And like- you know, so I had all this stuff just swimming around, like hope and fear. Mm-hmm. And, and I didn't even weigh 100 pounds. I mean, I was so tiny. I was like, tiny, tiny little thing. And um, yeah, I just, I wanted to make my grandmothers proud. I wanted to make my dad proud. And I, I, I just really felt like I, I wanted to do good in the world. I can't remember a time in my life when I wasn't working to improve myself so I could help other people. Like that's just a real driver of my energy and my work. I love that. And like a lot of people are like that, right? You get your energy from the surroundings of people around you. And like that's feeding positivity into you. Or even if they're feeding negativity, you're just figuring out ways to kind of change that and transform that. So now, you know, you you went to Yale, you proved everybody wrong. You, you, <laughs> you know, pursued the dreams that you, your dad kind of saw for you before he left. And now you're at Yale and you're trying to figure out, okay, what am I going to do for work? So you knew that you wanted to teach definitely. Or was like, how did you get to the point of teaching? I, I, well, it's crazy. The year I took off from (laughs) Yale, um, I, I thought I wanted to write and I got a job writing for a newspaper Mm -hmm. and I, my boss was this really sexist guy who was like a cousin of somebody at the New York times. So he thought he was like really important, but he smoked (laughs) all the time and he screamed at me all the time. And I was super miserable in that job. And uh, I, uh, one night I was at a bar and like the drinking age was still 18. Like, so I was, I could drink legally. I was at a bar and I <laughs> ran these two guys, like started not exactly hitting me up, but they started a conversation. These two older guys, like they're probably in their thirties. So they felt like a million years old. And, um, I asked them what they did. You know, I like talk to everybody and they said, well, we work in this community mental health program. We're looking you know, and eventually they told me they were looking for interns. And I thought, oh, this is my way out. I'm going to work for them. And I, I went for the interview. I got the internship. I landed the internship. I've, I've like two years of college under my belt. Everyone else who's all the other interns are graduate students in psychology and social work. Wow. I'm like, what did I get my, and I'm living (laughs) and working 
<laughs> with people who are chronic schizophrenics. Okay, some of those people were bi bipolar, but most of them had chronic schizophrenia. So they'd been in and out of the state hospital. And our job was to create daily life that was orderly for them. Mm. And I got, I mean, it never dawned, dawned on me that I couldn't do the work. You have to understand this is this like energizer bunny little girl who's like, <laughs> I can fix it. I can do it. I can. And, but I landed there and there was no, how you do it. Mm. And I didn't know anything. So the first thing I did was I wrote like a user's manual for the interns. And uh, so how does that get me? And that got me back to Yale mm -hmm. with a sense of, I was going to, I was going to major in psychology. I went nice. to take so give I you that direction. <laughs> yeah, but but I, I landed then, I went to a course called abnormal psychology, which is like the first requirement after introductory psychology. And I had just spent a year, nobody was abnormal. Like we were just looking live, we were living and working with people whose brains were different. Nobody mm -hmm. was like we were either all abnormal or nobody was abnormal. <laughs> and I I mean, I felt myself getting sick to my stomach in abnormal psychology, and I ran out of the room. I never took another psychology course, like not even a little. Because I'm like, <laughs> I'm not going to look at people like they're broken. I'm just mm. not going to do it. I can't do it. It's not who I am. And um, that, that work came in really handy because my husband's two siblings both have schizophrenia. Mm. And like, so it was something that was just a part of the family I married into, but I was ready. Like life had prepared me. Nice. Um, and I, I just became more and more interested in how like really great language works. I, I took a poetry course with a, a woman who is just the best teacher maybe ever in the world. Her name <laughs> is Maggie Mahar. She now works for Barron's. Like she's a writer on wall street. She didn't get tenure either. Um, and I just, like learn to do close reading, like really, really, really great. There's three things going on here at once, close reading, which I think is a great skill for leadership. You know, this person sees this, that person sees that, the same work, yeah. Um, and I love that. And so I went to graduate school so I could do more of that. And yes, to teach. Like by then I'd done enough. I worked in uh, the New Haven Shelter for, ba the New Haven Project for Battered Women. Wow. And so I was working with the kids first. By the time I left, I was taking women to court, um, you know, small entrepreneurial, <laughs> um, social mission driven place. We all did whatever we could to help women remake their lives. And I, I felt very committed to writing and self-advocacy mm -hmm. and, um, very aware of just the, the privileges I had, you know, that my parents who were first generation college students, like really poor, like half of our house never had furniture, you know, like, but we had a house <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and, we, so. and we had food and, um, you know, we had all sorts of things, but uh, I just, I felt very privileged. And I felt that all of this stuff that I like had been given to me, mm -hmm. that I, I should use it for good in the world. So like, that I landed at Yale felt miraculous, right? That I then landed at, you know, the University of Virginia for a master's degree and then Princeton and all of my graduate school was paid for by other people. And college was paid for by, you know, paid for by my mom who was, like she was 41 when I went to college and she was on her own and taking care of her two daughters. And I just felt like I 
I, I had to keep going because all these people had done all this stuff for me. And yeah, that's uh, wonderful. Yeah. And now you're kind of like repaying that. So now let's start talking about, you know, you, you got all, you went through this journey of finding yourself, educating yourself, and then kind of spontaneously landing in these places that let you, that taught you who you are truly meant to be versus kind of like the script that you were kind of trying to follow. Like, I'm going to do this, <laughs> yeah. that, 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 that. And then you found about, found out about this whole new world. And now, you know, you're embracing your story. And like you said, now your company is about telling your story. So when, after you didn't get the um, tenure at Rutgers, what was it that made you decide to kind of go off on your own and say, I'm going to focus on storytelling and helping and, you know, launching these businesses. And we'll talk a bit about like, how did, how did you grow it to have like two locations? But what was that um, thinking point that led you, that allowed you to realize, you know, my next step is to start my own thing. Like, what was was that like? There was a moment (laughs) when I had my book about 17th century English women poets Mm -hmm. was in press at Oxford University Press. Like I was really well-respected young scholar. And I'd written this book based on primary research in these tiny little public record offices about the moment when English women went from writing in manuscripts to publishing their poetry. Mm. And you can see how they talk about themselves in something where they control the circulation versus how they talk about things, gender, class, sexuality, when it's out in the world where anybody can read it. And I'm just like watching that shift and writing about that shift. And my senior colleague at Rutgers says, if you want tenure here, you have to pull that thing out of publication and rewrite it. Mm-mm. And he's like, you have to re, you know, it's not good enough. And I was, by the way, I was eight and a half months pregnant. I was as big as, a, as the side of a whale. I mean, I was so big and so, I had to pee all the time. I mean, really pregnant. And um, with my third child. Oh, gosh. And, and he's just like, you have to rewrite this book. But but I'll help you, Carol. And I had to decide that day, you know, was I going to rewrite the book to his specifications or publish mm. it and know that I was writing my death sentence in, <laughs> acad- in academia because he was really powerful. And the way academia still works is one powerful person can crush other people. And I was just like, publish the book, like, put, it, <laughs> put it out in the world and make it so. And like, okay, well, what am I going to do next? Right. And I, I, like, I applied for, I mean, everything. I applied for some, some jobs, uh, doing stuff that like in finance, some consulting, uh, academic administration jobs. Uh, and my favorite of all the jobs I was <laughs> offered was as the director of the women writers project at Brown university. Oh, nice. But The problem was I had three little kids and a husband in New Jersey and the women writers project was this tiny little thing that didn't pay very well. I I negotiated to the best thing I could get. And then it just wasn't, I actually, no, it wasn't enough, but I asked the people to find me something like it in New York or New Jersey. And they introduced me to Susan Hockey who was the director of the center for electronic texts in the humanities, which was a think tank, co-run by Princeton and Rutgers. And like before the internet was big enough to move <laughs> these big texts around, mm-hmm. we were creating the infrastructure that would make it possible to move them later. So I was like really creating towards a vision of the future. 
And I mean, that's what I've been doing ever since. You know, one way or another is like, what's the next thing that technology will be able to do to help people? Like if it's not helping people, don't bother. What will will we be able to do next? And how can we prepare for that now? Mm -hmm. And, and Susan was amazing. Susan, she's like, Carol, you have a PhD from Princeton. You can do anything. I'm just going to throw stuff at you and you're going to figure it out. So she was a great boss. If I was really confused, she'd help me untangle things. And I had like lots of independence to solve problems and learn stuff. So that was great. And when she moved, she got a, a, a tenured professorship in Canada and she left that place and they were being slow to hire anybody. And so it was just like everyone's doing their own blah, blah stuff. Then I, I looked around and I went again. I like, what, what are all the possible things I could do? I landed in marketing. I landed in online marketing way ahead of the curve, um, started a company, it bootstrapped it, sold it. Um, the company I sold it to, my boss harassed me. Oh my. That was, yeah. But I had to stay there for a year to get my money out of the deal. Mm -hmm. So I did, I put somebody like whenever I had to go into his office, I'd make sure I left the the door open and I like put somebody in the hall to listen in case things got really bad. Yeah. That it sucks that we even have to do that. Right. It sucks that anyone has to do that kind of thing to, but I'm just saying uh, this out loud because (laughs) there's somebody out there that's in a situation that's really painful. And I, I, whoever you are out there, I want, you to know, you're not the only one, like it's happened to a lot of us and a lot Mm -hmm. of us, it's been awful, but we've gotten through like these things should never happen to anyone. You know, they just shouldn't happen, but they do. Yep. They do. They do. And so that's why I say, you know, yeah, I've gotten through one or two hard things. One or two. (laughs) Yes. And you're going to keep on getting through no matter what. Yes, exactly. Yes. That that is life. It's some parts of it sucks, but if you look at it in the bigger scope, it's magical, amazing, and there's a bigger purpose at play here. So I'm glad you were able to figure out how to maneuver that deal and you know get your part and get your ownership. And yeah. so now you know after that deal, and then you left after the year. What's happening in your life? What's going on? You have the three kids. You have the husband. You have so well, I, like, I worked briefly for a, I worked <laughs> briefly for a big global marketing company, WPP, a part Mm -hmm. of WPP called Common Health, which is healthcare marketing, which um, I was not happy helping pharma companies sell drugs. I was doing really interesting work. Uh, The first online discussion group for people with HIV, the first um, online discussion group for women with metastatic breast cancer. Like I was doing very interesting work. But at the end of the day, I was helping big pharma sell drugs. And, um, you know, it will be said about me that I'm crazy idealistic. And if, if what I'm doing isn't something everybody should do, I try not to do it. Like, yeah, I, but- th- I have only a couple rules, but that's <laughs> one of them. If everybody did this, would, be, would we be better? And I didn't feel like I loved my boss. I loved my colleagues. And I was, had a really creative job building new things but I just didn't feel like I was doing good work for the universe. And so um, I left and I, I thought that I wanted to go back into higher fundraising for higher education. All this time I'd done a lot of volunteer work for, Mm -hmm. um, you know, Princeton where I got my PhD and Yale where I, 
you know, I, I like did lots of stuff in the community, mm -hmm. helped lots of kids from South Orange and Maplewood and Irvington and Newark get into those places. Like nice. I really, I loved that part of my volunteer work. And I thought I was going to do like fundraising in higher education, but I landed there and I just wasn't, I'm not meant to be in higher education because I'm too entrepreneurial and higher education just like, you it, know, it's, it's like molasses. Yeah. It does not move slow. It, yeah. <laughs> it, it, it's structurally conservative, even if the people are liberal mm -hmm. and, and sometimes people are oddly conservative about the most ridiculous, simple, like simple, simple things. <laughs> so I was like, not happy. And in a space of just like a few days, it's like storytelling showed up everywhere. Every corner I turned, like storytelling was there. Mm -hmm. And I was really interested in, I saw how storytelling, I was given a problem to solve, which was to help our first generation um, City University of New York students get mm. better jobs, better internships, better jobs. They were highly qualified. They were the like, most qualified students in all of New York City, but they just, they were using their resumes like armor mm. and telling stories about where they came from and where they were going was like to get them to put their armor down. Yep. And when they did that, they started having completely better outcomes. And I thought, oh my God, how did that happen? So I started reading about storytelling and the science of storytelling, it, like it's all in our brains. Like when mm -hmm. we tell what's real for us, when we communicate what's real and that vulnerability allows people in and it allows you to build relationships. And of course, that's why we're here on the planet <laughs> together, right? Yep. And so I started studying storytelling. I started teaching storytelling. I've been doing that ever since. Um, and my son, I, I woke up one morning and I, I had a dream about kids in Shanghai and kids in New York, like <laughs> talking on their phones and telling stories. And before Google Translate, in my dream, the phones was translating the languages, but it was also like there was this meta language of storytelling that allowed them to have fun, mm -hmm. allowed them to just be joyful together. And so that, I told that dream to my son who was sitting at the kitchen table right across from where I'm sitting right now, actually. And he said, you, you should start a company to do that. You should, you should teach that to people, mom. You look like really excited. You would, it'd make you happy. You could help a lot of people. Nice. That's how it happened. I try to listen to my kids. They're wiser than I am. <laughs> Total, I totally know that one for sure. Uh, I don't admit it, but it's, you know, sometimes you don't want to admit it, but it's definitely true. They just see it from such a why not do that? Right. Like, cause we know so much and they're just like, there's the, the world is a, is your oyster. Why are you not doing that thing? Like it makes you happy. Just go out there and do it. Um, exactly. I wanted to touch yeah. upon a point that was something that you said a little bit earlier in regards to like when you were in like the, the pharma company, even though you loved like, you know, your colleagues and your boss and you said pretty much something along the lines of like, if you don't stand for anything, like you have to stand for something or else you're going to just fall for anything. And I think, oftentimes people are afraid to make that stand because it's like, Oh, everything is well, or from the outside, it's, it's looking like, why are you leaving this company? Everything is just so perfect, but we all have to have a certain set of values within ourselves. And that doesn't mean that the thing is specifically bad. It's just like, it's not for me. I won't show up in the full authentic way I need to show up because this doesn't feel right. And that part of it that doesn't feel right is going to 
stare decisions that I make and it might stare them positively or it might stare them negatively. And instead of like kind of harming the others around you or kind of like tainting the waters for like lack of a better word, it's better just to stand for what you believe in and like know confidently, like this is not your last opportunity. There's something out there for you. So I really love the fact that you shared that. So now, you know, we got to the point, you're starting story two. What was like some of the first things that you did to kind of start up that company? Oh, wow. So the first thing I did was, uh, you know, you have to go out and like talk to your customers. Mm-hmm. So I talked to uh, New York City public schools and, you know, what um, th- there's a there's there's a person who describes story to the early days of story to is like a solution in search of a problem. Because I knew <laughs> I knew from what I was reading about storytelling that if we did it right, we could improve people's speaking and writing, right? There's mm-hmm. this theme of improving writing that just goes from like my whole childhood now, later, you know, is like, okay, how can we help more people write well? How can we help more people express what's real for them mm-hmm. in a way that also honors the reality of the people they're talking to? Because any truth has multiple perspectives. And figuring out how to get people in a conversation where all of those can be honored, that's no easy thing. But that's what I saw. That's, I, that, I, that's what that dream was about, about Shanghai and New York and young people having fun. Telling stories was, you know, differences being possible. Mm-hmm. Not we're all the same, but differences are possible. And um, so I, we started teaching in these summer programs, summer programs for high school students, summer programs for college students. You know, I was still working part-time for the City University of New York, which is like such a resource for learn, people learning. Mm-hmm. And we started to see we could improve students' writing in science classes, in history classes. We could help them write up their volunteer experience. But if we taught them to tell their own stories first, Mm. the magic of that was whatever else we were teaching, they would persist longer. Like they would stick with the task longer. And so that, that was amazing, right? Like that's a real breakthrough. So where's a place where you need to tell your own story? College admissions. So that's how we went to college admission essays first. And I'd worked in admissions when I was at Rutgers. I was the faculty advisor to the admissions committee at, at Douglas College. So I'd seen like thousands of <laughs> students and you could always tell like the kid with a you know, big personality shows up in one of those essays. Mm-hmm. Like my, my, you read it and then you want to read it to other people. You know, the girl who says, I walked into, I walked into the cafeteria on the first day of ninth grade all the black students were sitting to my left, all the white students were sitting to my right. Where was I with my cappuccino colored skin? Where was I to sit for lunch on the first day of ninth grade? Mm. doesn't matter what she says after that. You already like, hooked. No, <laughs> no, nobody wrote that for her. You know, like you can't fake that. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's about that moment for her, but it's also like every hard choice a person ever, ever had to make, right? Mm-hmm. And she, she didn't say, I'm great at making hard choices. She like took you in there. And so I thought, well, maybe I can teach more people to do that. It's just to find their own, you know, what we came to call defining moments. You know, those mm. moments where you had to do something new for the first time. And what do you do? And like, talk about it. How can you talk about those moments of vulnerability? And like, you know, like you started, you said, 
you know, people like want to tell a story that's perfect. I'm like, I'm goody two shoes. Everything's all better now, but helping people just to go to those places where it was hard and to share the places where it was hard. And yeah, I feel like if, if I can teach everybody to do that, that would be a good thing to do every day. Yeah. And I love that because I personally know, you know, it was a little tedious and I'm still working on like telling my story specifically in like um, a resume or like online. Cause like I, I know, and the different cultures also uh, want you to prioritize like the idea of like being humble and not like saying too yes. much. So it's yes. then it's like, what is okay to share? What's not okay. Okay. I won't say anything. I'll just say, I did a lot of hard things. What does that mean? Right. And that's what I was telling you earlier about with the podcast, right? People, I, I kept on hearing podcasts. Oh, I struggled. Then I became successful. What was the struggle? What exactly happened? Did you fall off a couch? Did you lose all your money? Were you in debt? Were you evicted? Like what was the struggle? Because everyone's, the struggle is completely different, right? No matter what your background is, you could get, you guys could be twins and your struggles are t totally different struggles and experiences. Yeah. So figuring out how can you share that in a way that, you know, just drops your guard and allows you to be fully authentic and real and not feel ashamed of your story because no matter what you do, it's still going to be your story. It's already happened. You're just retelling it and not feeling like you have to sugarcoat or edit or hold off on parts. Like this is me, this is who I am. And this is what like kind of got me here. Yeah. Yeah. And being, having the kind of confidence like to walk in your own shoes. Mm -hmm. So if somebody doesn't get it, it's their problem. Definitely. Oh, and snaps. <laughs> <laughs> and you know, that, that takes time. Mm -hmm, and definitely. also just the faith to like practice being real. Cause every mm -hmm. time you do it, it gets easier. But like, if you just wait till it's perfect, like nobody will ever know you. Mm -hmm. And I think also like another thing that adds to that aspect of, like you said, just be real and like fully you. I think the complexities, especially like living in the United States, New York is like um, New York, New Jersey is kind of like uh, a little exception to the rule where there's so many different mixed cultures and religions and races and like all the things like if it exists, it's in New York. And um, so that complexity where certain folks, you know, based on their background, you know, whether it's code switching or whether it's, you know, like a woman walking into a room full of men and feeling the need to kind of just like kind of musk up a bit or like put on this like armor. Like you said, the students, the CUNY students were using their your resumes as this like the sense of armor. Like I need to be protected. Like, you know, what is my immigration status? I don't want to talk about that because maybe that might make you feel offended or feel like I'm privileged or, you know, somebody that comes from a wealthy family, but then like sh sh um, goes off and then does their thing on their own. It's like, they don't want to feel like, oh, you're judging me before you even get to know me. So it's like, how do you yeah. show up in your full self when you kind of trained yourself to be someone else till you kind of could trust who's around and then drop your guard. So how can we be more, this is me from the jump all the way, take it or leave it. If you don't like, it, it's your problem. <laughs> yeah. And find places that value, you know, find people and places where, where who you are today and who you're becoming, you know, like where, mm, who, who, you're where becoming. Who, who you want to be is welcome. Nice. Right? Cause you got it. Like, it's not always so easy to shed those old things. Mm -hmm. So where's the place that that new person can be safe? You know, when you shed your old safe skin, the new person can be safe and, and vulnerable and safe, you know, yep, definitely. So, uh, you know, we've been having a great conversation. So I wanted to ask you the question, the highlight question of the podcast, you know, what, 
do you consider to be one of like your biggest entrepreneurial misadventures? Like something that didn't really go according to plan, which as entrepreneurs, we know a lot of things don't go according to plan, but what's one that you really wanted to highlight in this um, podcast? So I, I mean, I say, first of all, I didn't start like really being an entrepreneur soon enough. Like my parents were entrepreneurs, their parents were entrepreneurs. I should have known, like imagining I could ever be a happy academic. Like I just like, didn't even know myself. I could have, you know, um, but as an entrepreneur, you know, they, why the, why Combinator says there's three things a great CEO has to do. A CEO Mm -hmm. has to control their own moods. Mm. A CEO has to control the group's moods and the CEO has to control cash flow. And, uh, you know, because I was teaching storytelling and creating proprietary software to teach storytelling, you know, my stories just kept coming back and it was very hard for me to talk about sexual Mm. trauma. It was very hard for me to talk about sexual harassment. Mm. And this might not be what you mean by misadventure, but I would say my inability to really trust that I could be myself is the thing that held me back the most. You know, now it's like, you know, you can't kill me. And if you can't kill me, then you're just going to have to listen to what's real for me. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to, you know, beat you over the head with it, but, but my, my reality is real. And these mm-hmm. things that made me who I am, you know, they make me both really strong in all sorts of crazy survival <laughs> ways. And then the, like the flip side of that is, makes me weak in the same ways. Like our strengths and our weaknesses are flip sides of the same survival, the same Mm -hmm. drive, the same aspirations. And so this company in particular, like, I don't know if my dad saw it when he was dying or not, but I, I, I really did when it happened, when it started to unfold, I just thought my, my father would be so happy about this. He was a great storyteller and and he had some like learning differences. He never did well in school, but he did well in life. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just thought like he would be very happy in his company. And so then I just like let it evolve more. And I, I also, you know, we're talking about business, like managing cash flow took me a long, long time to figure that out. And it's still not, you know, I'm better at managing the vision and managing the product <laughs> and managing the people. Um, so finding other people who could really help with the parts of the business that weren't my expertise, I think asking for help, being myself, asking for help, all of my, my misadventures. And there's many of them, you know, like I could write a very like good book about all my big mistakes. Um, and, and not knowing what to ask, like the the big Mm. advantage this is not my idea. I can't remember which wise person said this. But the, the advantage of diverse groups, like you know what you know, and you, if you're lucky, you know what you don't know, right? Mm-hmm. But you don't know what you don't know you don't know. Definitely. And if you put together a diverse group, the group together will like cover more things. And you'll be less exposed from your own ignorance mm-hmm. because someone else will see those gaps and there, there won't be a problem with it, right? But just, I didn't even have that idea 
when I started the company. You know, I thought I was supposed to know everything. I was supposed to lead everything. And like, just companies don't work that way. It's much more bottom up than top down. You know, a good company, the culture runs things, not the boss. Definitely. Um, uh, yeah, I, I feel like the, you know, story two has like survived my <laughs> shortcomings. <laughs> And I think that's how, and I, and you know, that's actually how it is supposed to be. And the more I talked to you, cause I knew entrepreneurs before, like I became an entrepreneur. And then once I started working in the field of entrepreneurship and talking to more and more entrepreneurs and connecting and learning, I started to find out more details and information. And I realized like, in the end, it's all the same, right? And it's and, and it comes down to the sameness of the fact that we have these, you know, the entrepreneur, the founder is like this big visionary and we have these ideas. And then once we commit to that idea, we go on this like roller coaster and it, ne it never ends. Like, I'm pretty sure, you know, the top, you know, Jeff Bezos is stressing about something right now, right? He's like, you know, we have like the coronavirus going on and that's impacting like sales in like China and then Amazon and all the things. And, you know, Elon Musk, I'm pretty sure he's, you know, they, they experience these things, but we look at it from the outside and we think, oh, they're making money. They have good culture. They have good team. Everything is amazing. Forgetting like that, that's just a part of the business journey. And then like when you're working from a, for, a, for a company, it's not that fact that your company is not like the company that you're working for is not going up and down. It's the fact that your role is just a little bit further away from it that you're not experiencing the hit so it's like a wave right if you're sitting on the sand you're yes. not going to feel the wave hit as hard as somebody that's in the water like riding the wave like the wave yes. is still going to hit you but it's just going to be like boop, boop, versus like yes. that and, and then there's there's these things that are like high tides or tsunamis right mm -hmm. that like hit everybody like who knows what's going to happen with mm -hmm. the coronavirus in the united states like we know the government botched their response we know that they want it not to be true, but they can't make it not true. Like yep. it's science, it's bad. And you know, we're like not ready, Yeah. but um, okay, I'm going to swim. You know, the waves are higher today. I'm going to swim. Keep I know swimming. how to swim. <laughs> yep. Like uh, what's it? The finding, finding Nemo just keeps swimming. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> All right, we're coming to the end of the interview now. And this is the point where I ask you to share, uh, you know, what if, if if somebody listened to this and got nothing at all from the interview, which I know that's not possible, but what piece of information would you want them to, like key takeaway, a, a tip for them or tasks for them to go and do as homework for the listeners out there to implement in their everyday lives? So I, yeah, I've been thinking, I've been thinking about this a lot and Storytelling really works in three ways, right? There's stories as content, which is what most people think about storytelling. There's using the structure of storytelling to just make yourself a more efficient communicator, and that would improve everybody's communication. Then there's this thing which I call practice. Storytelling is practice, so like meditation or yoga. And when you do it every day, you are able to like look at yourself with peace and joy and equanimity. And you can look at other people, even people who've hurt you, even people who may be, you know, like an antagonist in the present. You can look at the whole situation with equanimity because you're like up here like the narrator. And I, I think that's why people who write every day, you know, they live longer, they have less depression and anxiety and less dementia. And I, I, 
I think it's that aspect of just metacognition and seeing the world from multiple points of view that's the real, you know, tonic, the healthy part of storytelling. So I would say, you know, keep a like an eye on where you're going, you know, and take the steps in the present that create the future you see. And write it down, y'all. Keep writing, keep writing. And again, like you said, take the steps in the present that create the future you see. Thank you so, so much for being here with me today, Carol. Guys, for if you guys want to follow up with Carol, again, story2, the number two, dot com, or you can look in the show notes or the caption section of this um, post and you'll see all her details to contact her on like social media, the website, a little bit of her bio. And, you know, telling your story starts with just, again, writing it down, figuring it out. Where are you now? Where are you trying to go? And just share it with people. Be really authentic in who you are and what you're trying to be and not scared to share that story. Like if they, like Carol said, if they'd like it, great. If not, that's not your problem. <laughs> that's because it's your story. It's your truth. It's who you are. So thank you so much for being here, Carol. <laughs> Georgie. Thank you so much, Georgie. This was so much fun. And thank you for for doing this, for asking people to talk about their real lives and their, including their failures. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in to this week's episode of Doing the Most. Catch us here next week, same time, same place. If you can't wait, head on over to doingthemost.xyz to stay connected. Until next time, keep on doing.